We have just recently completed a two-year journey through the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, which begins with these words, In the beginning, God. Now we begin today a journey through the fourth gospel, the gospel of John, which we read the first 14 verses in the scripture reading. But I want to remind you again this morning, and I'll take my text in this introductory way as we begin to, to lay the foundation for this study of who knows how many uh, weeks ahead. There in verse 1, in the beginning, isn't it amazing that this gospel begins the same way that the book of beginnings begins? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, the Bible tells us. The same was in the beginning with God. The Word was with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Gospel of John picks up and goes even beyond what the first book of the Bible does. We are in prehistory here, if you want to put it that way. Before God spoke the worlds into existence, there was the Word. The Word is the second person of the Godhead, God the Son. And we learn some things here that we do not learn in Genesis, that He has a role in creation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. May the Lord give us light as we go to His Word this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, this is Your Word, holy, inspired, and preserved for us. Give us listening ears, seeing eyes. Open the eyes of the inner man and show us the glory of our Savior. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It is oversimplistic to refer to the four accounts of the life and ministry of the Jesus Christ as biographies. But each of the gospel writers from their own human experience and perspective and guided by the Holy Spirit do give us insight into who Jesus Christ was and what he did. We refer to this as the person and work of Jesus Christ. That the answer to that supposition, that statement, silences all questions, all those who would knock on your door with some divergent doctrine, always go to the heart of the matter and ask the question, what do you believe about the person and work of Jesus Christ? Who was he and what did he do? What was his, the accomplishment of his life in coming to earth? The Holy Spirit wanted to make it unmistakably clear with irrefutable accounts as to who Christ is and what it is he came to do and is doing. Theologians refer to the first three Gospels as the synoptics from the Greek word, which means to see together. We get our English word synonym from it. And so we point to, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, of the similarities in their accounts of the earthly life of our Lord. They show us the similarities of his life in ministry. Matthew presents him as the son of David, heir to Israel's throne, and the Messiah, the king of the Jews. We see the kingly message throughout Matthew's account. Mark presents Christ as the servant of Jehovah with a work to be done, the perfect workman of God, and he brings out the characteristics of his service and how he served. Luke emphasizes the humanity of the second person of the Godhead, the Savior. He presents him as the perfect man, 
contrasting him from the sinful sons of men. And then we come to John's record. If I were arranging the Gospels, I would probably put John first, but I did not and had nothing to do with it. But when we come to the Gospel of John, we see how strikingly different it is from the other three. He gives us no genealogy of Jesus Christ. He tells us nothing of his boyhood. There's no reference of his baptism. We do not, he does not mention his temptation. There's no reference to the transfiguration, which is quite interesting since John was an eyewitness to that account, although the other gospel writers tell us that he was there. He does not mention Gethsemane. And only a handful, amazingly, of Jesus' miracles recorded in John's record. There are no scribes here, no publicans, no parables. While all four gospels, as we call them, unanimously and unmistakably present Christ as the one and only Savior whose sacrifice on the cross and his glorious resurrection prove he is both the promised Son of God and the Savior of men. John specifically and carefully and pointedly presents Christ as the sent one, the one sent down from heaven, come to earth and made flesh and living physically and really among us. From beginning to end, this is the overriding truth that he holds us to as he presents us to us his record of the life of Jesus Christ. Graham Scroggy writes, It almost seems that John sits with an open copy of Luke's gospel before him, deliberately leaving out the things that Luke puts in and putting things in that Luke leaves out. John uses simple words. His vocabulary and his phrases are simple. They number only 600 words in his total vocabulary, the range of a seven-year-old. That may be why we point seekers to this gospel, to this account, to those who have questions about Jesus Christ and who he is and what he came to do. It is absolutely readable. And yet it is one of the most complex books in all the Bible. Make no mistake about it. The simple words and phrasings that the Holy Spirit allows John to use unfold to us the mystery of the ages, the secrets of the Godhead. He who was the Word and was eternally with the Father has become flesh and tabernacles dwells with us. The eternal Son of God takes on a body. What a miracle. He limits His glory to that of an infant and proves infallibly that He is the Savior. And so the Word does become flesh. We could not comprehend a God whom the universe cannot contain. And yet Jesus Christ shows us the Father. I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He who the heavens cannot contain. He is revealed to us as a person who can be touched and is touched with the feelings of our infirmities and enters into our sorrows and our woes. Uh, With his limited vocabulary, John Phillips writes, If John's coins are few, their denomination is large, they are golden coins, 
royal sovereigns, the kind one would find in a rich man's purse. John records things and incidents about Jesus' life that the other gospel writers amazingly don't. In the introduction, he describes Jesus' pre-existence in his incarnation, that he took on a body here in verses 1 through 8. In chapter 3, he gives a personal conversation with a high-ranking teacher in Israel named Nicodemus. And there unfolds for us and introduces to us the parallels of the spiritual birth with the, the realness of the physical birth. And there we see the anatomy of conversion that it is a necessity, that it is utterly of the Spirit, that it must take place, and that you must be born again. What a lengthy conversation he records there for us that we can understand the need, the imperative to be saved. In chapter 4, we read of another conversation, a very interesting one with Jesus with a woman from Samaria, the woman at the well. We see Jesus speaking and carrying on conversations individually with people. And there we learn that God must be worshipped. If he's to be worshipped at all, it must be spiritual worship and based upon truth. Biblical revelation, not traditions made up by men. In chapter 6, he tells us that he is the bread of life. In chapter 7, he tells us that he is the living water. In chapter 10 the good shepherd, and all the teaching of the shepherd and his sheep, John unfolds to us. John alone gives us the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And that declaration of Jesus Christ that the choir so gloriously sang about today when his sisters were mourning, what did Jesus say? I am the resurrection. Because I live, you shall live also. What a truth, what a promise to cling to in this sordid, sad world that we Mire through day by day. He has risen. Because He's risen, those who believe on Him will live again as well. Oh, what a truth to hold on to this Lord's day. John alone records that humbling, poignant picture of the eternal Word stooping with a basin of water in washing the filthy feet of his disciples. He alone gives us the upper room conversation. All that took place in that room where the disciples would be gathered in a few days, the church would be born. His high priestly prayer in chapter 17, oh, what a glorious portion of Scripture that the Holy Spirit allows John to to record for us so that we actually see the communion of the Father and the Son on our behalf. John's account contains more teaching about the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit than all the other gospel writers. And while we point out these differences, among the gospel writers, they in no way, these differences in no way are problematic, nor are they contradictory. It takes them all to give us a full-orbed view of the Son of God. John is the one that tells us that if we were to record everything that could be recorded about this one, the Son of God, 
there are not enough books or space in the world to contain all that could be said and written about him. For one thing, John writes many years after the other gospel writers lay down their pens or quills. Tradition in the early church fathers tell us that John lives longer than any of the other apostles and that the rest having died martyrdom in martyrdom that John alone dies of a natural causes when he's close to a hundred years old. While the book itself does not reveal John as the author, the human author, there's so many internal evidences that point to him. John was the younger brother of James both called the sons of Zebedee. And James always mentioned first. And in the biblical writers, the birth order is always shown. And so it's James and John. Their father was a successful fisherman owning his own boats and uh, hired uh, men to help him in that business. We know from Mark 15 and Matthew 27 that his mother was Salome, who supported financially, along with other women, the ministry of our Lord. John, in time, became known as the beloved disciple who started out as a a disciple of John the Baptist. And one day, we'll see he comes to John and asks about this one. And John unmistakably says, this is the promised one. This is the Messiah. John leaves the following of John and attaches himself to the Lord Jesus and follows him. He was an early leader at the Church of Jerusalem. And tradition tells us he spent the latter part of his life as overseer, pastor of the churches of Ephesus and was there urged by the believers there to write a gospel to contradict heresies that were already asserting themselves in the early church, contradicting the the heresy that Jesus was simply a man and not the eternal son. John Phillips writes, this was the third generation by now. The ominous warnings of Peter and Paul and Jude about a coming apostasy in the church already had its seeds and was visible. The grievous wolves who would enter in not sparing the flock were were no mere alarmist fancies. By the time of the third generation, all kinds of heresies were being spread abroad. The third generation always brings particular problems to any movement. The first generation of a perceived truth is a conviction. In the second generation, it settles down to become a belief. In the third generation, it becomes merely an opinion. I fear we're in the third generation or the tenth generation or the hundredth generation, where the pooling of ignorance says says these things are mere opinions. He lived until the time of the emperor Trajan, who amazingly was known as one of the good Roman emperors. He was banished to the Isle of Patmos, where he received and wrote the great revelation at the end of the first century. What a long and full life the Apostle John lived. Some point out John's fiery temperament and that he was often displayed in Jesus' earthly ministry. When you read his little letters, the little epistles, which don't let the word little, the length of them, belie the fact that they are filled in some of the most complex 
profound books in all the Bible. But the simplicity of his writing, his revelation so simply and urgently pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you don't sense John's fiery temperament. And I only point that out. And I'll give some evidence of that in just a moment to say that the rest of us, there's hope as well. Our Lord refers to James and John. Do you remember his nickname for them? The sons of thunder. Well, thunder is not silent, is it? Thunder makes noise. And he he calls them that in Mark 3, verse 17. And when a village in Samaria refused to receive Jesus and his disciples, they just categorically refused to have anything to do with them. John impetuously asked in Luke chapter 9, Lord, will thou that we command fire to come down out of heaven like Lazarus, like Elijah did, and just consume this village? Haven't we felt like, if we could, asking the Lord to send down fire and remove the problem at hand? In Luke chapter 9, verse 49, we read, And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him. You can see the look on Jesus' face. John, who told you to forbid him to cast out demons? We forbade him because he doesn't follow with us. Jesus corrects John. John states plainly, though, the purpose of his gospel. And interestingly, he waits, not, not that he doesn't tell us in these introductory verses, but he gives us his thesis sentence, if you will, which your high school English teachers tell you it should be at the very beginning of your, your writing, very succinctly to tell you what tell your reader what you're about. But John, and let's remind ourselves the Holy Spirit is directing his thoughts, waits until chapter 20 and verse 31 to tell us his thesis sentence. You should mark it. It is one of the most important verses in the whole gospel. But these are written. He, he writes and he comes to the end and he says, I want you to know why I wrote. In case you missed it. In case you didn't get it. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. Not a Christ, but the sent one. The Messiah. I've written this account so that you'll know that Jesus Christ is the one and only Messiah. The son, in case you missed that, he f- further qualifies it. The Son of God, and that believing you might have life through His name. The basis of all gospel ministry. John's gospel is thoroughly evangelistic. And with an evangelist zeal, he tells us who Jesus is what he came to do, and what our proper response should be. You see, the gospel is not presented to you for your intellectual perusal and for your consideration of its plausibility. The gospel is presented to you by the evangelist John, as with the other apostles, that with the urgency, repent and believe the gospel. Today is the day of salvation. The word of God is at hand. He uses the word to believe almost a hundred times. Matthew Henry notes, John wrote what the others left out. He brings up the rear, so to speak, and that he gives us more of the mystery of which the other evangelists gave us only the history. While the other 
three evangelists write more about the physical things that Jesus did, thus the miracles and the interactions with the lepers and, and other people. John records conversations. John writes about the spiritual things of the gospel. So we can say that John is the key to the gospel writers. He notes, here it is that a a door is open for us in heaven and the voice we hear is come up here, come up higher. John presents Christ right from the very start as the eternal word, as the eternal as, as eternal as the Father and co-equal with the Father and the Spirit and as powerful as the Spirit who moved upon the face of the waters. He is plainly and clearly unveiled as the Savior of the world. And the goal is to bring us to a place of receiving Him. We look at the, the beautiful verse in verse 12 and we're going to look at these verses in particularly, but I'm just in an overview pointing overview pointing you to that verse we so often extend to people in urging them to believe on Christ for salvation to as many as received him that tells us who qualifies who can be saved those who will receive him to them who receive him he gives the power to become the sons of God to Nicodemus's puzzled look on his face when he tells him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, how can I do that? How can I enter my mother's womb? Jesus shows to him that it is of the Spirit. It is a spiritual work that only the Holy Spirit can do. And unveiling the Savior, showing you your sin, showing him you his power, and in believing on him, that power will transform you and make you a child of God, regenerating you leading you to repentance and faith to as many as received Him. Oh, what a wide net we throw. What an open invitation we throw. As many as who will receive Him, we can say on the authority of the Word, do you want to be saved? You can be saved. The Savior is waiting with arms wide open to as many as will receive Him. But it's qualified, isn't it? What does it mean? To as many as received him. And we can say, even though it's in the past, who will receive him, who do receive him, to them gives he power, resurrection power, regenerating power, life giving power, because we are by nature, dead in trespasses and sins. There must be regeneration before the sinner can believe on the Son, before he can receive Him as Lord and Savior. Oh, we talk about the receiving, but John will show us the work that must be accomplished, the the soul that must be plowed to as many as receive Him, to give them gave He power, power. All power is given to me in heaven and in earth power of the Son of God to become sons, daughters, children of God, even to them that believe on His name. The goal of John the Evangelist is to bring us to a place of reception, of receiving. 
Have you ever tried to give something to someone who didn't want it? It's a very difficult thing to do. You have exactly what they need. You know that they need it. You've gone to great expense and trouble to provide it. And you offer it to them. And there's reluctance or refusal on their part to receive what you have. The word believe and receive are closely related, and I don't want to preach that message before we get to it, but in the closing of this message, I want to remind you that it means to to invite him to rule over you. Jesus said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow me. Are you able to receive that? As a little boy, I remember the haunting song that we used to sing. Are you able, said the Master, to be crucified with me? Yea, the sturdy dreamers answered, Lord, to death we follow thee. There must be an answer to that question. Are you able to receive him? To be ruled by him? to be taught by Him, to obey His teaching, to be saved by Him. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, King Solomon, the great glorious dedication of the temple, the long-awaited day of dedication, one of the longest prayers in the Bible is recorded at that dedication of the temple built at the command of God by plans handed down by God himself. And Solomon asked in that dedication, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Can we really expect God to come down to us and dwell among us and interact with us. He who cannot be contained, whose footstool is the earth, can we expect even this glorious building, unlike any ever constructed, expect it to contain the Holy One? Will God indeed, will He verily tabernacle with us? What a question. Some individual may be asking this morning, Pastor, do you really believe me, expect me to believe that God will come and indwell me and live within me? By this receiving. Is, is that what you're saying? God's glory had dwelt in the tabernacle. We, we know that. The Shekinah glory cloud of the Lord filled the place and rested over the, the mercy seat, which was a picture of the work that Jesus Christ would come to do. The Bible tells us it came to pass that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. And for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Yes, Solomon, God will dwell with his people. 
when the nation of Israel grossly disobeyed, we see the glory of God departing. Ezekiel records it. Ezekiel 10, verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house. Hundreds of years pass from that event until one day in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son. God the Son comes to earth and the glory of God comes down to us And we read in verse 14, the Word was made flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. The Word that that Solomon asked of old, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Oh, yes, yes, yes. And so our responsibility then is to say the Savior has come. Remember, John finishes his discourse said, I've written these things that you may know that he has come. He emphasizes that in his little epistles, doesn't he? That you may know that he is the Savior, that you may know you have eternal life. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Don't you know when Solomon made an end of praying, And as they began to offer the sacrifices, the fire of God came and burned the sacrifices and the glory of God filled that house. But a greater event has come when Jesus Christ came to earth. Isaiah says he has no beauty that we would desire him, no comeliness that we would be drawn to him. It is by His Spirit that He draws us to Himself. And we rejoice that wherever His Word is preached and His Gospel is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit of God is showing to people the Savior. So we present Him to you this morning, the only Savior. The Word made flesh. God is with us. Charles Wesley's beautiful what we refer to as a Christmas hymn. I'm sorry that we divide them up and sing some only at Christmas time and some at Easter. And uh, that's a shame because the true songs of doctrine and hymns show us things we need to know. And Wesley, in his inimitable way, says, and it's as if he borrows from John's gospel to Pen it in this way. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to appear. Jesus our Mild he lays his glory by. Born that men no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. What a Savior. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, your Word is absolutely amazing. 
We thank you for the record before us. We pray that you open your word to us as only you can do by your spirit. Would you take our efforts this morning to make Christ known and reveal him to every heart afresh and anew to that one who is outside of Christ who may not have even known of their need for the Savior until this hour. I pray that you would do that work of revelation, that work of regeneration, and bring them to that place where they'll say, Lord, rule over me. I want you, I need you as my Savior, my Lord. I receive you. You've promised that if I receive you, you'll make me be, become a son of God. Not by works of righteousness, not after the flesh. Lord, we must have a regeneration. We must be born again. We cannot bring that to pass with our own works or efforts. But we praise you that the Holy Spirit is among us and at work today. May that trembling soul who may say this morning, is this for me? Is this true? Can I be saved? Can I, can I receive him? May they, in reverent and repenting and childlike faith, come to you just now, where they are, and call on you. Lord, we have this promise to as many as received you, you gave them the power to become the sons of God. Lord, may people today open their hearts and rest in your promise that you are the Savior, that you are mighty to save, and that you'll come to every heart. We pray this in Jesus' precious and matchless name.